Good afternoon, everyone. Hope you are well. If I haven't met you, my name's Ed, and uh, it's my privilege to unpack God's Word tonight. Uh, please keep your Bibles open at uh, Mark chapter 2. Uh, that'd be really helpful to follow along. And uh, if you are interested, there are some pointers in the handout. Well, there was an old uh, quiz show a few years back called Family Feud, and uh, people would try and guess what 100 random Australians would say. And one of the questions one night was, what is the greatest need of our world? It's a great question, isn't it? What's the greatest need of our world? Anyone guess what the top answer was? Someone said it, I think. Yeah, world peace. So world peace was the number one answer. Okay, And there was a whole bunch of other things. Now, we live in a very, very complex world. Uh, if you follow sports stars on Instagram or if you follow um, celebrities online, you'll know that most of them are now activists. They're not just sporting people or celebrities plying a trade. They're activists. And so they're using their platform to advocate for things like vaccine equality in Africa or Black Lives Matter or global hunger. Um, I don't know if you've been watching uh, online this week, but there's been a big change over the last couple of weeks where um, across a, different, a whole bunch of different platforms, and especially Grace Tame, Australian of the Year last year, um, there's this movement for less gestures, more action. And so you will have noticed um, lots of people giving the knee in sporting games at the moment. There's this kind of move away from that to now action. And that's because gestures are good for awareness, but they are, don't really help the complex, significant needs of people. And there are plenty across the world. And these people are not online with 5 million Instagram followers. They're voiceless. And they're looking for hope. Now, Jesus Christ, what do you think he would say is the greatest need in the world? That's our question tonight. What's the greatest need? And Jesus is going to tell us the answer, and we're going to go from five to one. Okay? Five to one. And uh, we're going to start, again, on the shores of Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is in the north of Israel, and it's that big 10,000-person lakeside town. And the initial wave of Jesus had calmed. So think Taco Bell opens in orange. Everyone has to line up. If that was you, tell me why one day. Uh, for an overpriced taco. And then uh, a, few, a few weeks later, right, you can get down there tonight and get one pretty quick, right? Like the excitement has dropped. That's kind of what happened to Jesus. Jesus last week could not enter the town anymore. But now he's back in town. And he got in secretly. You see there in verse 1, he got in secretly, but the secret doesn't last. The moment someone spots him people start to come again and they crowd into this house. And the house, it's a Capernaum house and it's little. So don't think kind of five bedrooms on property. No, it's just a little house and it's got a flat roof. That's really important. Okay, outside that house are four men and they're approaching the crowd carrying their friend. Their friend is paralysed. That means the friend can't walk. So they're carrying him on a mat and they're desperate to get into that house but they look at the line and everyone looks at them and then everyone in the line looks away. 
because no one's giving up their spot in the line for these people. And so these blokes, they have to get resourceful. You've got to imagine the conversation, right? Hey, Bill, why don't we go up on the roof? Tom, what will that do? Jesus is inside, not outside. Yeah, let's just take the roof off. You can't remove a roof. Why not? Okay. It's, it's just kind of the, the conversation. So what happens is they climb up the stairs onto this roof and it's a common place where people sit. So don't kind of think this, kind of think back deck. All right, it's the back deck of your house. Up on top, it's cool. And people would go there. Now, that roof was made of planks, then sticks at the opposite direction, then branches and twigs, and then two foot of dirt. Okay, then it was stomped down. So it's very sturdy, very thick. Now, Jesus, he's inside, he's preaching. What does that mean? It means he's talking about God's kingdom, talking about repenting and believing that God's king is here. And in the house are the hopeful, the curious and the scribes. We'll come back to them later. And what they do is they're listening to Jesus and they hear footsteps above. Weird? Not so weird. Then they start to hear shoveling. That's weird. They start to hear tearing. Really weird. And they start to hear the grunts of men. That's really weird. Then dust starts to fall. If you've ever been under dust, it gets in your mouth. You're breathing, it's like, um, there's dust. Actually, and then you start to see dust on people. Then there's a shaft of light through the, the roof. And by this time, Jesus, best public speaker ever, totally lost the crowd. No one's listening to him anymore. Okay? And then it gets worse. The planks get removed and there is a massive hole. In your Bibles, it actually is quite helpful in the CSB, but literally it says they unroofed the roof. No one speaks a word. The paralyzed man comes down. Everyone watches and he lays at Jesus' feet. No one's speaking. And Jesus, he looks up, sees four friends, they wave. Looks down, paralyzed man. What does he see? He sees five men of faith. Men of faith. Not mindless faith. If you've ever been taught that this is Christian faith, next slide please, it's not. That is not Christian faith. Christian faith is not having a hope or a dream and stepping out into the unknown and just hoping that God is there. That is not Christian faith. If anyone tells you it is, it's a lie. Here's what Christian faith is. A conviction based on evidence that Jesus is the person to turn to for help. These five blokes have faith. Why? Because they've read Mark 1. They know what happened in Capernaum. And so they come to Jesus because they're convinced the evidence is there that he can help them. What's faith? Faith isn't going to youth group and having a bit of a talk and going, I've got faith. No, no. Faith in this passage, it's active. They picked up their friend and went to Jesus. Faith is persistent. You're looking at a line of a thousand people. You're saying, I'm getting there. No matter what. I'll go up on the roof. Faith is sacrificial. Those blokes had to pay for that roof to be repaired. They had faith. Do you have faith? Christian faith, being convicted based on evidence that Jesus is the person to turn to for help 
for your great need. Everyone in the house totally expects the healing, right? That's what has been happening for the last few days. But they don't get a healing straight away. Jesus says four powerful words. Five friends, four powerful words. And there's an audible breath when Jesus says these. You are, your sins are forgiven. Can you imagine the four blokes in the roof? They lean to each other and they go, Jesus, Jesus, the legs. Fix the legs. The paralyzed man looks up and goes, what a great Christmas present this is. Actually, if you've never been to church before and you're hearing this story, it actually sounds cruel. Peter Fitzsimons, he's an old bloke who likes to hammer Christians, he would say something like this. In the face of great need, Christianity only offers words. He's not a criminal. He's a cripple. But Jesus is not a fool and he's not cruel. Jesus sees what no one else can see. You see, that man who's paralysed is deeply, deeply suffering. He cannot feed himself. He can't toil it. It is a horrible way to live. Yet Jesus sees that he has a greater need than that physical sickness. And what it is? It's his sin sickness. His ultimate need was not healing from God, but holiness before God. And that is the greatest need in your life. Now, the Jews 2,000 years ago had a different way of thinking about sickness and suffering. They interwined sickness and sin like a tree wrapping itself around each other. It's complex. Now, the modern way we think of it is this. If you get cancer, that is just probability. Bad luck. If you go through bad stuff, that's just the nature of living in the beast. Okay? The, the survival of the fittest. That's life. But the Bible has a different view, actually. It says that illness and racism has a sin source. That humanity, me and you, our decision to ignore God's word disrupts, infects and breaks every single cell. Some of them go to cancer and the entire cosmos. You can trace from every illness and suffering it has a sin source. Now in the Bible, sometimes your sickness is linked to a specific sin. But it's very rare. Okay, it's very rare. Numbers 12, 1 Corinthians 10. And actually Jesus gets really cranky when the Jews try and link those two because it's not simple. I mucked up on Thursday, I get a headache on Friday. That's not how life works. But every single sickness is a signpost. What that means is every time you get a headache, if you, if you ever get cancer, the pandemic, and actually those two broken legs that aren't working, the back that's not working, they're all a sign that testifies that this world is not the way it's meant to be, that there is a sin source. Now, young guys, you need to be very thankful that you're waking up most days with a very healthy body. 
that your mind is healthy, that you can go to your GP and get health treatment. That is a, it is a wonderful blessing from God. And if you've ever had a miracle of God and been healed, you should be overjoyed. But we must never deny reality. We sin. And our sin, my sin, it's like a chain that connects us to a sinking ship. Think the Titanic, that you are connected to the Titanic by a chain. And that Titanic is the sinking broken world. And so while ever that chain is connected, no matter how much healing you get, it's cosmetic. It's just moving cushions around your lounge. You can jog to your heart's content. You can exercise, Pilates, whatever you do. You can drink those shakes that are meant to be healthy for you. And you can be really fit in your coffin. But sin leads to death. The chain leads to judgment. So hear Jesus' words again. Ready? Your sins are forgiven. Some of you have heard that for 20 years. It's not a cliche. Do you know what Jesus is doing when he says those four words? He's cutting the chain. He's cutting the chain. Forgiveness of sins meant that that paralyzed man was no longer guilty before God. Forgiveness of sins meant that sin no longer had a power over that man, that he was now friends with God. Forgiveness of sins meant that he knows where he's going after death. And forgiveness of sins is only possible because Jesus faced the judgment for sin instead of that paralyzed man. Jesus didn't say this, but I imagine it could have happened, right? He would have leant down and said, Brother, I'm going to pay a lot for that. Those four words, I'm going to pay a lot for that. I'll read you a quote. It's an old quote, but you'll get it. When Jesus died, the father who had been his bright son became darkness. All that the father had been to him was taken away. All the father could be to evil, he was to Christ. And the words, depart from you, cursed, was said to Christ. That's the hell Jesus faced. A quantity and quality of judgment we will not fathom. The five friends came for a small gift called healing and they got the great gift that was forgiveness. In the house, remember, the scribes are there. Why are the scribes there? Because Jesus has created a reputation. They've got to come and find out if he's the Christ. The Christ is the promised saviour of the Old Testament. They're there checking him out and they hear those four powerful words and they're not disappointed. They're flabbergasted. Totally flabbergasted. Have a look at verse 6. But some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? I want you to know they're not wrong. Their theology is not wrong. They've read their Old Testaments and there's nothing in the Old Testament that says the Messiah, the promised king, would be the one to forgive sins. It's not there. The Messiah would save, heal, give peace, justice. But do you know who forgives sins? 
God forgives sins. He's the only one who can forgive your sins. Look at Psalm 32. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity. What Jesus is saying here is, I do what God does. I forgive sins. Whatever you expect of the Christ, you have to merge with this. Jesus forgives sins. It's either blasphemy or true. Now, Jesus, beautiful picture of authority. He looks behind their skin and sees their heart. Look at verse 9 and he asks them a question. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? It's a great question. Totally impossible to do both as a human being. But that's not what he's asking, is it? See there? Have a look again. It's a question about what is easier to say. It is so easy to say to someone, your sins are forgiven, because it's totally untestable, isn't it? But if you meet someone who's never walked and you walk up to them and say, get up and walk, they've got two seconds to work out if you're a fraud or not. So Jesus proves to the skeptics that he has the authority to forgive sins by doing the harder thing to say. Get up and walk. Oh. And the man immediately stood up and ran out. There's a whole bunch of physios and OTs in this room. People who don't walk for a week can't run. He hasn't walked in his life and he runs out of the room and the crowd parts. You see, Jesus understands his authority. That's what this passage is about. You see it there. He calls himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man in the Old Testament is normally a human being. But in one place, Daniel 7, 13 and 14, it is the one God gives absolute authority and power to. The Son of Man rules with authority. And Jesus is saying to those who know, I am that one. I've got the authority to see behind your barriers into your heart. I've got the authority to heal a paralyzed man and I have the authority to forgive sins. Jesus is the son of man. Would you have wanted to be a disciple of Jesus? It would have been a wild ride. Imagine waking up. Well, I'm not sure what he's going to do today. Can I say the next passage is the wildest of all. Jesus gets a new recruit. Look at verse 14. Then passing by, Jesus saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Who's Levi? Levi was employed by the Romans, and he was employed to tax his fellow Jews whatever he wanted, based on what they were carrying. So, Erica walks past the tax booth, RVT. Those of you who drive, this is how it worked. Bang, Erica has to come over to Levi, and, and, and Levi says, open your bag, Erica. Ah, oh, oh, you got a phone, a wallet? Okay, I'm going to tax you this amount. Totally random. 
Levi did that every day. He was hated. Hated. He was despised. He couldn't go to church. Totally excluded from the synagogue. Actually, he probably couldn't have ever gone home. The family would have excluded him. And that is the guy that Jesus invites onto his team. It's hard to capture the shock, isn't it? I actually don't think we can, really. Like, think of the most corrupt person you can think of being invited to be a leader at OEC. Like, it's just, we can't even imagine it. Peter would have whispered, Jesus, you can't associate with him. The Pharisees go, Jesus, why do you associate with sinners? And look at verse 17. When Jesus heard this, he told them, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus doesn't apologize. What he says is, your mission, Pharisees, and my mission are like two missions that are colliding and exploding in front of us. The Pharisees' mission was to separate Separate themselves from sin, that's a good thing, and separate themselves from people who don't measure up, the sinners. What's Jesus' mission? It's to sinners, to a paralyzed man, to Levi the tax collector, and to you. You. He's a doctor for sinners. He's concerned with forgiveness of sins not separation. We end with a beautiful scene, a preview of heaven. Levi hosting a dinner to introduce his friends to Jesus. Stunning, isn't it? Sinners like him. There was a prostitute, a whole bunch of tax collectors, some spiritual lepers, some outcasts, some heathens, the inferior, the guys who eat the wrong foods, the guys that listen to the wrong music, the guys that do the wrong things, and they're sitting around King Jesus and they're celebrating. They're eating. They found him compelling. If you ever hear a non-believer say, oh, that's boring, this Jesus stuff, they've never met Jesus. No non-Christian would ever say Jesus is boring. And Jesus, oh, he accepts them. These people that no one would accept, he accepts them. And he never compromises the standard of God. He's saying to them, repent, believe, take off your crown. Remember last week, put it at King Jesus and you are utterly accepted, totally forgiven. Now, I've never met a Pharisee at 6.30, but some of their patterns are in our heart. Are you troubled by the fact that God may bring some people to our new ministry centre that you think maybe shouldn't be there? You started growth groups this week. I imagine it was a great time. Was there a seat there for someone that you'd be awkward to invite? That you think shouldn't be there? Is there someone that you think, I can't sit next to them at the great banquet in heaven? I can't do it. We need to remember there's only one banquet in heaven. There's only one qualification to be at the banquet. It's the free and full forgiveness given by Jesus 
to all who put their trust in him as crucified and risen. Jesus comes to save sinners. To those who know they're sick, who see the evidence and go to him for help, who have faith. Because Jesus is the answer to their greatest need. Uh, last year, the Bible Society released a wonderful story, and it was a story of a young woman who'd been taking Bibles into Iraq. It's one of those stories, you know, and she's been doing it year after year. And this one particular night, she came up to customs with her suitcase, and the official said, you, here, open your suitcase. It's full of Bibles. She said, he says, you, come into the back room. And she goes there. And this is what he said to her, quote, I want you to know you have a friend in me in your work distributing Bibles in Iraq. I'm from a Muslim background and our family was once in great need. Some people who must have been Christians sent us a box of provisions and in the box was a Bible. We read this as a family. We became Christians. We want you to know you have a friend. My wife also shares Bibles. She shares audio Bibles with her friends and they listen to it under their burqas so no one can see it or hear it. Thank God for the burqa. The word of God changes lives. The word of God is powerful. That's Mark's central message, right? Jesus speaks, the man is healed. Jesus speaks, the man is forgiven. Jesus speaks and a tax collector follows him. When Jesus says something, it happens. I've got two take-homes. There is real forgiveness in Jesus' words. This isn't a make-up story tonight. Can you honestly say tonight you've been forgiven by Jesus? You don't need to fake it anymore. No one needs to know, just you and God. He already sees into your heart, but he'll know. Have you received the forgiveness? Have you had that chain cut? I want you to know that King Jesus is right here, right now, offering you forgiveness for your sins. You just need to go and ask. And if you do that, you tell someone. Because you've got a hundred people who want to help you. Most of us here are forgiven. But that doesn't help what happens on a Tuesday or a Wednesday or a Thursday. You know it, don't you? You have a rotten Monday. You're rude to your parents. You're lazy. You do something with your girlfriend or your boyfriend. You're rude to your wife. You're rude to your husband. And you sit there and you think, oh, there's no way I'm forgiven. Jesus can't forgive me. What do you do? You don't pay Jesus back. You don't try and earn it back. That's not our faith. What's our faith? Go to Mark 2. And you say, does Jesus say I'm forgiven? Yes. Does he prove it? Yeah, he hung on that cross. Promise proof. That means you never need to doubt the forgiveness of sins for you. If Jesus says it, 
it happens. The greatest need in the world is the forgiveness of sins. Yep. But that doesn't mean that Jesus denies the other great needs of our world. There are lots of them. And I love that you guys are passionate about it. That's actually like Jesus. He never ignored someone in pain. He never ignored the sufferer. He cares for the weak, he cares for the sick, he cares for the frail. He never denies their pain. And he always upholds the fact that forgiveness of sins is the greatest need. That is our model. Do not do what some Christians do, which is put aside the forgiveness of sins and just do the physical needs. That misses the greatest need. But also don't be the person who goes, I've just got to preach the gospel and they can starve. That isn't Christianity. Jesus cares for people. He has no trouble caring for the physical needs, the mental needs, and sharing the great news of forgiveness. He is our model. We are to do good to all people, especially those in the church. Ephesians 6. That's a great question to talk about as growth groups, how to do that. Also, I want you to know that Jesus doesn't promise false hope. This is where you'll hear some people like me say, if you have enough faith in Jesus, he'll heal your cancer tonight. If you have enough faith, you'll be happy or healthy or rich. Can I just say, that's not the gospel, and it's a lie. The good news of Jesus is much better, because Jesus declares that every forgiven person will always be healed. Not tomorrow, not next week. Jesus wants you to know that if you have forgiveness of sins and you get cancer, it's not the last word. That if you believe in Jesus and you get a tumour, it's not the last word. If you get Alzheimer's, it's not the last word. If you have pain, it's not the last word. If you have a heart attack, you live in a hospital room or go to a hospice, it's not the last word. Actually, if you die, it's not the last word. Because Jesus Christ forgives sins and Jesus is victorious over all suffering and one day he will just say with his words that's it no more pain no more suffering no more death no more misery and when he does that will be the end there is certain hope if you're forgiven because when jesus says something it happens let's pray Father God, we thank you so much that you are the God of hope. That in the Lord Jesus, we can find absolute, consistent, never-ending forgiveness of our sins. Lord Jesus, we praise you for cutting that chain. We are no longer slaves. We are always accepted like that tax collector at your banquet because of what you've done. And thank you so much for real hope, not fake hope, not pushing ourselves up or having a wish, God, but knowing, Jesus, that when you say suffering will be done, it'll be done. You're the God of real hope and real healing. And we love the fact that the banquet awaits us. In Jesus' name, amen.